Welcome to Every Woman's Grace. My name is Ann Bradley, and I am so grateful that you've joined us in the study of Acts this semester. Last week, in chapter 10, we saw the prevalence of prejudice in every human, and also the complete absence of prejudice or favoritism in God. We learned how his power in his people through his indwelling Holy Spirit allows us to be united in Christ with no regard for any outward differences. The chapter ended with these new Gentile converts believing the good news and then magnifying God with their mouths, prompting Peter to baptize them. Peter understood that God had granted these Gentiles forgiveness for their sins. But we will soon see that others needed to understand this too. Have you ever used the idiom, I'm fighting a losing battle? I used it frequently when my children were young and I tried to keep the kitchen clean or the laundry washed, folded, and put away. And later on, keeping enough food in the house for four hungry teenagers. Some use it in relation to their weight. Uh, they, They try to lose weight, they drop four pounds, and then they put on five, and they feel like they're fighting a losing battle. Well, we can all feel that way with many issues in life. We try, and we try, and we try, but we just can't seem to get ahead, and we can't win. Well, these are silly, really, in comparison to the one battle that we all fight and we all will eventually give into, and that is the fight that people have with God. As I read and reread chapters 11 and 12 for this week's study, I realized that there's so much packed in these chapters. They begin with prejudice and they end with pride. I could focus on how God expanded the early church or on how the Jews and the Gentiles through the power of Christ overcame long-held prejudices and they learned to live with one another in love. Or I could emphasize how persecution had plagued the early church, but the hand of God was always there protecting them. Maybe Maybe it would be helpful in this present time to learn how to have peace in the midst of great trial. Maybe we need reminding that when we pray, believe. Perhaps I could look at how pride comes before a fall. Then, then I found an old sermon by John MacArthur, 1973, and it all came together for me. No matter What was thrown at the early church, whatever struggles they encountered, be it the sin of lying with Ananias and Sapphira or prejudice that we saw in chapter 10, critical attitudes that we see in these chapters, or just ignorance or small faith, whatever was thrown at them, eventually the evil always fails and God always prevails. So for me, the exclamation point at the end of this week's study is that it is foolish and it's futile to fight with God. So open your Bibles, if you have them, please, to Acts chapter 11, and we're going to jump into this week's study. Peter had needed God to intervene in the way that he had been taught and the way that he thought. You remember that from last week. And he now understood that this new covenant ushered in by Christ was offered to people of every nation, not just the Jews. Peter understands, but the believing Jews in Jerusalem needed some convincing. Just like people in any age, their prejudice had been, it had taken root in their lives and it had become ingrained in the way that they thought and the way they lived. Prejudice is when we have an unfavorable opinion that has been formed beforehand or without knowledge. And let's face it, we all 
have prejudice within us. The way we were raised, the people with whom we associate, the culture in which we live, and the beliefs we've been taught, these can all create prejudice within us. But God, but God wants us to be like him, like Christ. Throughout our lives, after we put our trust in him, he changes us, sometimes slowly and sometimes quickly, but always changes occurring. We call this lifelong shaping into the likeness of Christ sanctification. And we understand that it is not going to be completed until we are with Christ and we see him face to face. Then we will be like him. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 promises us that. Peter is being changed by God. And as, God, as God's leader of this church, he needs to teach the church in Jerusalem. But old habits do die hard, and we're going to see 12 to 14 years later down the road, this same contention is going to have to be dealt with. We'll see that in Acts chapter 15. But for now, Peter had to have known that this new thinking was going to be met with some pushback. So he wisely brought six brothers who witnessed the conversion of the Gentiles and would gladly verify that the story he's going to tell has been told correctly and truthfully. The apostles and the believers in Jerusalem, well, they'd already heard, and they were not happy. Even in the days before social media, news traveled fast, and disturbing news always travels faster. And these believers were critical of Peter for associating with uncircumcised men, and even sharing a meal with them. This was a big deal. The wording is strong here. They were angry. They were angry about it because this was something a Jew, even a Jew who was now a believer in Jesus Christ, they would never do this. These brothers were of the circumcision party. In other words, they believed that Gentiles could be saved, but only by coming into the faith through Judaism accompanied by the outward sign of circumcision. Well, a fight was in the making, but Peter diffuses it. How does he do this? Well, we're given some really wise advice in these few verses here on how to approach criticism and to avoid fighting in the church. The first thing is leave your opinions and your emotions out of it. Peter tells them exactly what happened, just as God had orchestrated it. He doesn't insert his thoughts, or he doesn't get angry with them for their reaction to him. The second thing we notice is we need to let the word of God do the convincing. In verse 16, Peter says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord. Let's just stop right there for a minute. May I... State the obvious here. You need to know something to be able to remember it. We have to stay in God's word. How can we give truth in a world of sound bites and lies and obvious animosity towards God and his word if we don't know his word? Here's your first truth for today. A mark of a Christian is a commitment to God's word. So important. A mark of a Christian is a commitment to God's word. So, what exactly was it that Peter remembered? Well, he remembered the words of Jesus that Jesus had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. God is establishing something very important in the foundation of the church. Baptism with water is an outward symbol of the belief that we are all sinners who must repent and must be cleansed. This is what John the Baptist did and what we are commanded to do as an outward sign of who we are now in Christ. Acts 2.38 covered that for us. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is a gift 
of God to one who believes. This is the that internal heart cleansing that's only possible through Jesus Christ. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Circumcision was an outward symbol of a people who were set apart by God. Baptism is a symbol of a heart that has been cleansed of sin and is a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Acts is full of the early church being saved and then being baptized. The church today is still commanded to be obedient to the public proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ by baptism. Well, this was a huge change for these Jewish believers. They really hadn't fully understood Isaiah 49, 6, that says, I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Their misunderstanding had created potential for division. It made me think, how often do we do the same thing? We don't like what God tells us to do in his word, possibly because we don't understand, or perhaps we just disagree. At times, we don't like the direction he's leading us, so we fight him. It may show up in arguing with one another or criticizing one another, but the reality is we're really fighting God. Ignorance of God's word makes us very vulnerable to fighting with God and with his people. But it's a sign of great faith and spiritual maturity when we can be taught something new from God's word, something that possibly challenges our long-held beliefs and prejudices. Well, these believers may have been completely dumbfounded by what they learned, but they understood that it was from God. And just like Peter, they knew they could not fight God. They were committed to the word of God more than they were committed to their own opinions. They chose not to fight the word of God, but instead, what did they do? They glorified God. Why did they glorify him? Because God was offering Gentiles repentance, the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is necessary for eternal life. It means to change one's attitude about God, about Jesus Christ, and about ourselves. When we believe that it was our sin, yours and mine, that put Jesus on that cross, we repent and we change the way we think about our sin. We've changed the way we think about our Savior and about our God. We change the way we live. And this truth was changing the early church. Your, your next truth to write down is our doctrines must saturate the way we live. Well, the gospel is changing the believers in Jerusalem. And now it is time to expand to Samaria specifically to Antioch. Since Stephen's stoning in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7, if you remember studying that, the church had been under intense persecution and they had been scattered. But they brought the gospel with them wherever they settled. And at the same time, there was a famine all over the world, which scattered scattered them even more, which spread the gospel even more. Luke lists unnamed yet faithful men of God who preached the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists, and the Lord's hand was with them, causing many to be saved. These unnamed men were the founders of the church in Antioch. In fact, there were so many new believers that the church in Jerusalem heard about it, and they decided to send Barnabas to check it out. Well, if you look in the back of your Bible, you, most of you will have a section of maps. And you can see, if you go to the New Testament or maybe the 
Paul's missionary journeys section, you can see where the next cities that are mentioned are listed. The gospel had spread to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, to Antioch, and Cyrene. And each one of these cities was brilliantly situated to spread the gospel to the world. But the focus in Acts 11 is in Antioch. Now, Antioch is a very interesting city because it is not unlike the one we live in right here in Los Angeles. Its size was exceeded only by Rome and Alexandria, and it was a major trade route for the Roman Empire. It was noted as a famous sports city and especially famous for its chariot races. It was a city of magnificent culture and great riches. It was also a pleasure city because they worshipped the god of sex. After They had actually built about five miles outside of the city limits of Antioch a temple of Daphne where sex was worshipped through priestesses who were really nothing more than religious prostitutes. It has often been referred to as the heathen metropolis of the East. Antioch had um, a lot of influence, a whole lot of influence on the culture in which they lived. Um, So much so that a Roman writer of the day said that the Orontes River, which is the river that flowed through Antioch, spilled its garbage into the Tiger. Tiber, excuse me. And what he meant by that was that what went on in Antioch corrupted all of Rome. Everything flowed through Antioch. And out of this corruption, though, sprang this new church. Jesus Christ had his impact upon this hedonistic city, and he used it to save the nations. So Barnabas has been chosen to be sent by the Jerusalem church to check out these new believers in Antioch. And Barnabas, his name means the encourager, and he is always such an encourager. He's also a Jew, but he is from Cyprus, which gives him a similar background to the believers in Antioch. And when he gets there, he's really glad at what he finds, and he encourages them to remain faithful and to have a steadfast purpose. This is great advice for all of us. Cling to the Lord. Remain true to the Lord. What does that look like, to cling to the Lord and remain true to the Lord? Well, John 1.1 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word. Remaining true to the Word is is remaining true to the Lord. You remain true to the word and you cling to the word. You stay in his presence, filled with his spirit. You love his body. You speak continually with him through prayer and you cling to his word. Hold tight and keep holding tight because this journey of sanctification is going to get bumpy So hold on tight. Barnabas understands that these believers, they really need solid teaching here in Antioch. And this is another great piece of advice for churches today. Get the right person for the job, one who knows and teaches sound doctrine. So what does he do? He fetches Paul from Tarsus. Now, Paul has been there for many years now. Remember, Barnabas And Saul had already become friends. They'd already grown close. In fact, in chapter 9, it was Barnabas who vouched for Saul and took him to those rightfully dubious apostles in Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Paul are the first church leaders in Antioch that are teaching the word of God sent from the original church in Jerusalem. And in verses 22 through 26, you can see that these two faithful men teach the people of Antioch for one full year. Antioch is the first real church made up of both Gentile and Jewish believers, and it became the sending church for all of the Gentile world. Another truth we find here is that submission to God's word is essential to true fellowship in the church. 
Well, believers were first called Christians in Antioch. And we know this name did not come from the Jews because Christ means Messiah. And the Jews would never have used the word Messiah for Jesus Christ. It describes one who is the party of Christ or a Christ one. Likely it wasn't meant to be complimentary, but it did become the new identifier for those who followed the way. Many today say that they're Christians, yet they don't believe the core truths of the faith. The truth of what a Christian is has never changed. And this is why Jesus gave this really tragic warning in Matthew seven twenty two. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And, and didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To me, that's just a tragic, tragic passage, but it's true. These days, our society seems to be so focused, I'm sure you would agree, on how human beings identify Our identity is important. It's what people see in us, and it's how we see ourselves. What we base our identity on is of utmost importance, because we know that the powers of this world want nothing more than to have an entire army of people identifying with them. To identify with the world is to identify with Satan himself. As Christians, We identify with Christ. Years ago, I encountered an old acquaintance from high school right here at this church. And we had a great time just reminiscing and enjoying the fact that after all these years, God had brought us back together. Until she said something that was very disturbing to me. She asked me if I'd been a Christian when we knew each other back in high school. She had accepted Christ during those years, those crazy Jesus freak days of the 70s, but she had no idea that I was a believer. I was both surprised and I was also very sad. I had been a Christian since I was eight years old. I went to youth group at my church for heaven's sakes. How could she not have known? I don't want to be that kind of Christian, the one who just blends into the world. So it was around that time that I adopted 2 Corinthians 2.15 as my verse. It says this, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I desire to be like Christ. I want to be his aroma wherever I go, under any circumstance, and with every thought and word I utter. This is the kind of Christian I resolved to be. Now, anyone who knows me understands that I'm still in process, but hopefully no one would be able to say, I didn't know you were a Christian. So what do we learn about who a Christian is? A Christian is submitted to God's word. A Christian pursues fellowship with one another. A Christian is generous with others within the body. A Christian is committed to prayer. And a Christian serves the Lord Jesus Christ from a heart that loves him. Our pastor, John MacArthur, just this week in his sermon stated that one of his primary goals in ministry has been to call Christians to be Christian. God calls us to be like Christ. And that is just what these new Christians are doing. Because there was a great famine coming, and the prophet Agabus came from Jerusalem to tell the church. We find this in chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now, Josephus wrote in his book of Antiquities that when the famine hit Jerusalem, it oppressed them and many people died for want of money to procure food. They couldn't buy food. They were so destitute. 
So when these Gentile believers learned about the famine, they collected whatever they could and they sent relief to the brethren in Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't a rich church, but they sent what they could to Jerusalem. These two groups of people, these Jews and these Gentiles, had now become so united in Christ and their prejudices had turned now to a love so great that it had tangible results. This is the example of fellowship that has been established for the church. The doctrines of our faith will change us if we truly believe them. A Christian must no longer walk as unbelievers in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 4.17 tells us that. So we've seen Peter and the leaders at the church in Jerusalem come to the knowledge that is completely futile to try to fight God. But great blessings had come from their obedience. Now we get to chapter 12, and we're going to see what happens when a fool fights with God. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Ladies, only a fool, a stupid person would go to war with the one who created and owns the universe and all that is in it. But throughout history and throughout the Old Testament, we could recite a list of rulers who tried to do just that. They tried to fight God. We started with Pharaoh. Uh, How about King Arad, the Canaanite? Balak, the king of Moab? And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria? But let me introduce you to another fool. Let me introduce you to Herod. He comes from a long line of kings who warred with God and ended badly. The church is harassed by Herod, but God protects the church. So Herod, we're talking now about Herod Agrippa I, and he reigned from AD 37 to 44. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. You remember him. This is the Herod that tried and failed to kill Jesus when he slaughtered all the baby boys around Bethlehem. Herod the Great reigned for many years, but he was hated by the people. A secular writer of the day said this about that Herod, Herod the Great. He stole the throne like a fox, he ruled like a tiger, and he died like a dog. Then there was Agrippa's uncle Antipas. This Herod married his brother's wife, then beheaded John the Baptist at her request. Jesus called him that fox in Luke 13, 32. But when he stood before him at his own trial, he would not even speak to him. This Herod reportedly died a very painful death related to gangrene of the intestines and the surrounding areas. Not, not a pretty way to die. Now we get to Herod Agrippa. So you can see he has come from a long line of people who promoted self while persecuting God. And it's not a great plan. He had a shaky relationship with Rome, and he was always looking for ways to stabilize his power base. He was part Jew through his grandmother, so he had had been placed by Rome as the ruler over northern Palestine, which included Judea and Samaria. Now, Herod wants to gain peace with the Jews, not because he cares anything about the Jews, but because he wants to look good to Rome. The Jews hate Christians. So he decides that the way to appease the Jews is to persecute the Christians. Herod isn't necessarily anti-Christian, but he's definitely pro-Herod. What Herod starts as a persecution, God uses to scatter the church to the uttermost parts of the world. And again, we see the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Well, we see at at the beginning of this part of the passage, Herod kills many people, but he kills James, the apostle James, it says, with a sword. Now, according to the Talmud, 
The sword was used to kill someone who led others after false gods. So perhaps this was the pretense for arresting and um, executing James. James, you remember James? He was the brother of John. Those two, remember the, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder? And they were greatly loved by Jesus. James was one of the three closest to Jesus, along with Peter and John. And this had to have been a sad and tragic loss for those of the early church, those early Christians. But killing James, killing James had been such a great success. Wow, if he got Peter, the leader, how pleased would the Jews be then? Up till now, Peter had been the face of the early church. He was commissioned by Jesus, and he has pretty much dominated the first 12 chapters of Acts. God has used Peter to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to Samaria. Do you remember where it goes after that? The uttermost parts of the world. But Peter is going to disappear from the narrative, and Paul will become the new leader of the church from chapter 13 on. But for now, Herod arrests Peter, and he plans to execute him right after the Passover because he wants to make the most of it because every Jew is going to be there and they'll see it. This was going to secure Herod's political future. But Herod is fighting a losing battle. In chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, Oh my goodness, it talks about Peter, and there is so much we could cover in this part of the narrative. The arrest of Peter right after the execution of James would have been so traumatic for the early church. Peter, though, had a reputation for escaping from his incarcerations. He would get arrested, he would preach to anyone who was in front of him, and then in chapter 4, he was just released. Or, in chapter 5, an angel let him out. And this had happened twice before. So, Herod makes sure Peter's not going anywhere. He thinks he can outmaneuver God. He places 16 men to guard Peter, rotating four at a time with two chained to him and two to guard the cell. And this is what we would call in our day a maximum security prison. You know the story. The night before he's to be brought out for his public trial and execution, once again, God springs him. But the craziest thing about this entire thing to me is that Peter, while chained to two guards, is sound asleep. In fact, he's in such a deep sleep that the angel that comes to get him has to jab him in the side and really shake him awake. Well, we don't know what was on Peter's mind that night. It doesn't say, but perhaps he drifted off to sleep with Jesus's words to him in Matthew 16, 18, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or maybe this thought gave him rest the one he wrote later on in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter understood firsthand the love, the sacrifice, the power, and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had learned long before that if God is on your side, you have all that you need. Peter had ceased fighting God, and had surrendered to him. And so complete was his trust in his God that he had sweet peace and deep sleep. I can't read this story of Peter being freed from that dark, dank prison without this old hymn by Charles Wesley. It comes to my mind every time. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Ladies, when we stop fighting God and we surrender to his will, trusting him completely, we too are free. 
We're freed from the sin that enslaves us. We're free from the fears that steal our rest. And we're free to follow Christ. Well, the prayer of the believers is a repeated theme in the book of Acts. I've said that before. But why do we even need to pray? I mean, doesn't God already know everything anyways? Remember from chapter 10, just last week, we learned God knows the name and the heart of everyone everywhere. So why pray? Well, the primary reason that we are pray is because we're commanded to pray. We're commanded to talk with God through prayer. We're told to pray for our leaders, for our nation, for our enemies, for peace, for repentance, for revival. Over and over and over again, we're commanded to pray for our fellow Christians, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. We're commanded to pray for the church. We pray and we pray without ceasing with all thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. So, in this time of great distress for the church, when James has been killed and Peter is about to be as well, the church prays. And while the church prayed, God worked. They understand that God is with them. They trust the words of Jeremiah 1.9. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And how are they praying? They're praying earnestly. It was interesting to me that this is the same word that was used for Jesus's prayer in the garden. This is talking with God from the heart, in the spirit, without any distractions of the world interrupting us. It means literally to be stretched out before God. I liked this uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon in his book, What a God He Is to Hear the Prayers of Those Who Come to Him. This is his quote. There may be some who think their prayers are worthy of acceptance, as the Pharisees did, but the true Christian, in a more enlightened retrospect, weeps over his prayers. And if he could retrace his steps, he would desire to pray more earnestly. Well, while these believers prayed earnestly, God was working. And how wonderful that God allowed these beleaguered Christians and us to be included in his work through prayer. It had looked hopeless. James was dead and Peter was supposed to die in the morning. There's a saying, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And we see this in action in this passage. God heard their prayers and he grew their faith through their prayers. But most importantly, he showed his glory, his power, his mercy, and his wise plan. There was no prison strong enough, no army large enough, no ruler power, powerful enough to keep God's plan from progressing. So how do we apply this to our lives? These are just a few things that I could think of. Are you frightened by the events currently around you? Pray. Are you anxious and are you confused? And are you trying to understand? Pray. Are you staying separate? Or are you gathering with others to fervently speak with our Lord? Pray corporately. You know, our church recently did just that in response to the frightening and confusing times that we find ourselves currently in. There was a day of corporate prayer, a day when hundreds of believers fervently asked the Lord to do his will, to keep us strong, to protect his people, to make us bold, to guide our leaders with the wisdom that comes from the word, and that God would be glorified. You know, we should be very grateful for leaders who follow the instruction for the church that was established in God's word. Another truth for you is that fighting God is futile 
but faithfulness to God is freeing. Well, this ends the record of the work that God had given Peter to do. The door of faith had been opened to the Gentile nations. And we now move from the building of God's people through the word and the earnest prayer of the people to the destruction of evil pride. The chapter that began with Herod killing James will end with an angel of the Lord killing Herod. We have already learned a little bit about who Herod was, but now we get to see the more of his self-exalting, arrogant, and prideful character on display. Luke, ever the accurate historian, gives us a clear depiction in the next part of the chapter. Apparently, after losing his most wanted prisoner, Peter, and putting the guards who had guarded him to death, most certainly in the same manner that had been planned for Peter, Herod left Judea and he went to the sea. He went to Caesarea to sulk in the sunshine. But good old Herod, it doesn't take long for Herod to get angry again. But this time, his anger is directed at the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are coastal cities that are north of Caesarea, and much of their food was sourced from Galilee. Kind of like California depends on other sources for water here in California, Tyre and Sidon depended on Galilee for food. But apparently, Herod was mad at these cities, and their food supply was in serious jeopardy. So, like any good politician, they approach Herod in a way that they know will please him. They know him, and they know how to please him by appealing to his pride. When he dons his royal robes and he sits on his throne, he feels good. He feels powerful. He's declaring to all that he has all the power, and they are completely dependent upon him. Well, the people give him exactly what he wants. They exalt him and they proclaim him powerful. What specifically did they cry out to please this egomaniac? They say, the voice of God and not of a man. Well, Herod is mistaken in believing that he is the main player in this setting because it's God. It's always God. God had already established himself in control of every single detail. God had rescued Peter. He'd frustrated Herod's plans to give himself a political advantage. And he did it by sending an angel of the Lord to rescue Peter in 12 verse 7. Now God is going to end Herod's life again by sending an angel of the Lord in verse 23. But this time, he strikes Herod. As our own pastor has said so well, it is stupid to fight God because God fights back. God promises twice in Jeremiah in 119 and 1520 that he will fight and he will deliver and he will prevail. So as the people are exalting Herod, he's struck He's eaten by worms, and he dies. Yikes. I mean, this is not a glorious way to make an exit. Let me read to you the secular account of Herod's death by Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and this is found in Jewish Antiquities. He says this, On the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. It shone out after a surprising manner, and it was so resplendent as to spread a horror over all that looked intently upon him. At that moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a god. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. 
a severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad that he would certainly die in a little time. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifty-fourth year of his age and the seventh year of his reign." So what's the message of the life and death of this wicked ruler? Heaven rules. Daniel 4.26, when Daniel was interpreting the king's dream, says this, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. The other thing that we learn from Herod is that God wins. Daniel gave this message in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. He says God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. And when Nebuchadnezzar boasted, is it not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? A voice came from God and said, You will eat grass like an ox until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. So God had freed Peter, encouraged the hurting Christians, and killed the prideful prideful ruler. But he isn't finished yet. Read with me in your Bibles, Acts 12, 24. What does it say? But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod had tried to fight God, and he lost. Satan fights God, but he's already been conquered. Revelation 3, 20 and 21 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Are you fighting God? You won't win. You can't win. Second Chronicles thirteen twelve says, Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their Battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Anyone who has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of their sins, and now lives for him, anyone who hasn't done that is at war with God. That person is fighting with God and they can't win. James 4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Fighting God was useless because the word of God continued to increase and multiply. There's There is not anything that's able to outshine, outlast, outdo, outrun the glory of God. Another truth is that nothing can diminish the glory of God. So ladies, what have we learned from these two really extraordinary chapters? Stop fighting God when you don't like what he tells you in his word. Stop fighting God when you don't like what he's doing in your life. Stop fighting God because you don't like the world and its rulers over you. Stop fighting God by glorifying yourself instead of giving all the glory to him. As the hostility toward God and toward his people escalates and we see it, as the world moves farther and farther from him, perhaps you find yourself anxious and fearful. And possibly this message is for you because it's for all of us. Don't 
argue with God because you're fighting a losing battle. He wins every time. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, when you argue against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. If we are with the Lord Jesus Christ, we win. And if we fight him, we lose. So how do we stop fighting and how do we start glorifying? First, you must repent and believe in him. You must stop being his enemy and become his child. For those of us who are believers, yet occasionally get off track, we find the answer to that question within the book of Acts. Submit yourself to God's word. Stay committed to prayer. Pursue fellowship with one another and give all glory to God. Simply put, stop fighting and arguing with God. Obey him. He rules. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you, the all-glorious creator, sustainer, and savior. You alone are king, and you alone receive all glory and honor. We thank you for giving us the word, for giving us your spirit, for giving us each other to love, to encourage, to support one another. We thank you for giving us the joy of speaking directly to you through prayer. Most of all, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we ask you that you might unify the church, that we Christians will act like Christians. We pray that we, you will help us to pray more fervently with earnestness in our hearts. We ask that we will trust you more fully and rest peacefully in your will. And we give all glory to you. In the name of Christ, amen.